Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, welcome to a special Naked Scientist question and answer edition with me, Chris Smith, joined by Ginny Smith and Dave Ansell. Also with us this week is special guest, the insect expert Ian Burgess, and we'll be talking with him about daddy longlegs a little bit later in the programme, as well as fielding your science questions, including, already in, do fit people sweat more? Why don't people in Australia feel upside down? I presume that's from someone in the Northern Hemisphere. And does a lot of protein in your diet suppress your appetite? That's all coming up in the next hour on this week's edition of The Naked Scientists. If you'd like to get in touch with us, then please... Please email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And up first, let's go to Mackie. Hello, Mackie. Hello. What can we do for you? Well, I have a question about body hair. So um, this is hair that's not on the head, but everywhere else on the body. Okay, far away. So when we remove unwanted body hair by waxing or plucking, we all know that they grow back again, which seems fair enough because um, we're affecting the follicles directly. But my question is about when we cut or trim them, they also seem to grow back to its natural length. And I just wondered, how do they know that it's been cut? if we're not really removing them from the follicles? And also, when do they know when to stop growing? Hi there, Mackie. So the short answer is that your hair doesn't know that it's been cut. This is a Mm -hmm. really common myth. People think that if they trim their head hair when they're trying to grow it, that it'll make it grow faster. And people say that if you shave your legs or your face, it makes it grow back faster. But that's not actually the case. The only thing that affects how long your hair is and how fast it grows is the hair itself and your genetics. So hair goes through three phases when it's growing. There's the angine phase, which is the growth phase, and this is when it actually grows when it gets longer. Now, on head hair, that can last between two and six years, and how long that phase is counts as how long your hair can grow to. So some people seem to be really lucky and they can grow hair down to their waist, whereas other people, no matter how hard they try, it will never get past shoulder length. Not their eyelashes, though, surely. (laughs) No, not their eyelashes. Now, that's the point, because body hair has a much shorter angine phase. It's only a couple of months, and that's why it never gets as long as head hair. 
I think there are a few exceptions of weird people who've managed to grow their underarm hair ridiculously long in the Guinness Book of Records, but with a couple of weird exceptions, it doesn't get as long as the hair on your head because this angin phase only lasts a couple of months. Now, after that phase, what happens is the hair is cut off from the blood supply. So the follicle sort of dies and it enters a dormant stage and then a bit of time after that, it'll fall out as a new hair begins to grow. So what you're seeing is you're trimming say your leg hair while it's still in the angin phase it's going to continue growing but it can only ever get to a certain length because that angin phase will end and it will fall out brilliant Mackie, does that uh, pour some i won't say wax on it <laughs> some oil oil on the on the situation does that, does that answer the question yes i suppose so thank All right. you good to have you on the show thanks this is the naked scientists with me chris smith dave ansell and Ginny smith And this is a special question and answer edition of the programme. So if you would like to ask us any questions, do please send them in by email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Any question you would like to send us and we'll include it in the next edition. Now, at the beginning, I said that we've got this interesting question about icy drinks and Dave's going to do the experiment. So tell us what you want people to try and do, Dave. So this is a question we've been asked several times and it's essentially if you have a glass of water absolutely full, so it's almost going to overflow there's an ice cube floating in there. What's going to happen to the ice cube as that ice cube melts? And so I thought I would do this experiment in a couple of different ways. I have a nice box full of ice cubes here. Go can on, can I have a couple from my glass? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's pretty hot in here. I don't have any left at this rate. Didn't know I was going to get ice and slice with my radio show this week. So I'm going to do this in a couple of ways. One of them I'm going to put quite a fair amount of ice in one glass. And another one I'm going to put lots and lots and lots in. So there's more ice than will fit in the glass. So in essence, we've got a glass which has got liquid in and some ice floating around in the liquid and crucially the ice goes above the top of the, the glass with the liquid in. We've got another glass which is absolutely jammed full of ice but there's no liquid. That's right, so I'll top up the first one so that water is right on the edge. In fact, slightly above the top so it's only surface tension yep. holding it so in. So we've got ice cubes that are bobbing around above the level of the uh, liquid in the glass. And the other one... We'll do the same too, and we'll see what happens. Okay, so in one of them we've got ice just level with the top, the other one the ice is literally bulging out of the top and floating around in it, and over so, the top so of the, the rim. So the second one, the ice is actually being held up from the bottom of the glass. And it is on a tray, so... I've got ahead on that one. What do you think is going to happen at home? Do you think that the level of water in the glass when the ice melts will stay the same? Do you think it will rise... And overflow, or do you think it will fall? Tell us, Chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Uh, let's go to John, who's got a sweaty question. Hello, John. Hello. Fire away. Who is more fit, the person who starts sweating as soon as they begin to exercise, or the person who barely breaks a sweat? The former may be thermoregulating better than the latter, but the latter would seem to be unaffected by exercise. So that's a really interesting question, but how much you sweat is affected by a load of different factors. Obviously, the weather. On a really hot, sunny day like today, you're going to sweat more because sweat is a cooling mechanism. It aims to dampen your skin, then you get evaporation, and that cools you down. Now, when we do exercise, of course, we get warm, so we sweat more. 
So it would seem that someone who sweated more would be more efficient. They're better at cooling themselves down, so that's more likely to be someone who's fitter. And that was what people thought. There were plenty of experiments that seemed to show that. They got some unfit people and they got some fit people and they got them to do exercise so that they were exerting themselves the same amount and the fit people sweated more. But when you look at this a bit more carefully, actually, the difficulty comes in how you determine that someone is exerting themselves the same amount. So what they did here was they looked at the maximum oxygen efficiency, which is a kind of measure of fitness, and they got people to work at 60% of how hard they can work. So the fit people were obviously working a lot harder to get to that 60% than the unfit people were, and they were sweating more. But when you look at it more closely, because the fit people were having to work harder, they were getting hotter. It seems that if you're fitter, yes, you can run faster and use the same proportion of your maximum oxygen usage, but you're still making more heat because you're running faster. You don't get any more efficient at running without producing heat. So actually, these fit people were just getting hotter and therefore sweating more. When they did the experiment, but they controlled for the heat that the people were producing, so they made the unfit people and the fit people run to produce the same amount of heat, they didn't find very much difference in their sweat, apart from on their foreheads. And in fact, the unfit people seemed to sweat more on their forehead, which is a bit surprising and unusual. So I think just looking at two people in the street who are running along and seeing that one person's sweating and one person's not, you can't really tell anything about fitness levels. Because, of course, there are other factors that affect it as well. So women, on average, sweat less than men. And larger people will sweat more than smaller people because they've got a larger volume compared to their surface area, so they find it harder to cool down. So it's kind of hard to tell, but it doesn't seem that there's a huge difference once you control for this heat production. Ginny, thank you very much. I hope that uh, means that you can cool off now, John. I will do so. Thank you for joining us thank on you. the programme. It's The Naked Scientists. Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Ginny Smith. We're answering your science questions. If you'd like to ask us anything under the sun, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientist.com or find us on Facebook. Now, we had an email from Tad who said he was saddened to hear the news recently that comedian Mel Smith died of a heart attack at the age of 60. He said he's slightly concerned at his passing because he reckons he's in the same sort of risk category. He said he was watching a documentary on a Horizon programme recently concerning the Atkins diet, and it concluded with the suggestion that protein is a good appetite suppressant, which he said he finds intriguing. He said, could you give us a fuller explanation? Well, the answer is, Tad, that what researchers in recent years have discovered is that there are populations of nerve cells in the brain which can sense the nutrients that you're eating. And here on The Naked Scientists, just under two years ago, we had a researcher from Cambridge University called Dennis Burdikoff who came in, and he was describing a series of experiments where they have found a group of nerve cells in the bottom of the brain, a region called the hypothalamus, and these nerve cells are called orexin nerve cells. They make you wake up, they also control what you want to eat. And he has found that if you feed these cells with the same sorts of amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, that someone would get from eating a protein-rich diet, then these nerve cells dramatically alter their activity. Previously, we thought they only changed their activity in response to sugar levels, but it would clearly indicate from his work that they also change their activity on the basis 
of proteins as well. And this therefore could be the basis of why when someone eats a nice protein-rich breakfast, they then don't tend to feel as hungry through until, say, lunchtime, compared with people who are only fed a carbohydrate-rich breakfast. Because in, in experiments on groups of individuals who are doing similar sorts of jobs, similar sorts of metabolism, that's what you find. People who eat more protein feel less hungry through till their lunchtime compared with people who eat either no breakfast, obviously, or people who go for a carb-rich breakfast. So if you want to stave off appetite, have a sausage for breakfast, but ideally not one that's too fatty. Nikki is on the phone. Hello, Nikki. Hello, Chris. I normally listen to your radio show. This is Nikki Ulovsi here, and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg, of course, as you know. Wonderful to be reaching out across the world. Someone in the Southern Hemisphere was a bit, bit cooler than it is here. It's, it's hot here, but of course it must be winter time for you. Yes, it's about five degrees centigrade at the moment, and of course it's, uh, it's uh, what's the time now, quarter past seven in the evening. So what can we answer for you this week? Chris, I was looking at a photograph on the uh, internet the other day of HMS Victory, and I thought to myself, when they had cannonballs on board before battle, I don't know what, what the total cargo of cannonballs would weigh, but when they were out in a battle and they've now shot them all off at the enemy, would that affect the, how can I put it, the displacement? If I could. You know, the buoyancy of the boat, how, how yes, far? Yes, in other water. words, it's, it's going to ride, it's going to float high up in the water. Sure. Or would they have to take on water as ballast to, to bring it back to where it should be? Okay, let's, let's ask Dave. So, Dave, the, the basic premise is you have these old gunboats, they're firing off tonnes of ammunition and at the enemy, obviously, and they're going to be a lot lighter after a big battle than they were before. Does this affect how buoyant the boats are and did they ever need to compensate? HMS Victory, I've looked it up, and she carried about 27 tonnes of ammunition. So if she fired all that off, she'd be 27 tonnes lighter, which seems quite a lot. But she was a ship who, I think she, her displacement was several thousand tonnes, um, so it's quite a small proportion of the weight of the ship. And also that's quite a small effect compared to other things which she was carrying. She'd be carrying several hundred tonnes, so maybe even three or four hundred tonnes of water, um, 50 tonnes of um, beef, another 50 tonnes of pork. So she's probably carrying five or six hundred tonnes of stuff in a hole. They weren't firing the pork on the <laughs> No, no, but they, they were eating that. <laughs> so if, if the difference between when she started off on a long, long voyage and when she finished, whether or not she'd been firing any pork out of the cannons, uh, would be far, far greater than whether she'd had a battle or what, not. Though, I know that Rolls-Royce, with whom we've done some work to do with their jet engines and how they work, they do experiments where they use chickens, which they fire into engines to test bird strike. And so they do use sometimes frozen chickens because occasionally if you get a bird that's been you know very very cold and it suddenly gets sucked up into an engine then it's a really good model of what will happen if, a, if an engine ingests a bird so um, i suppose you could argue that sometimes you know frozen frozen things could be quite good good weapons because it demolishes a jet engine when it goes into it the thing just falls to pieces i can quite imagine but yeah no back to the original question back to the boats, though, <laughs> back to the boats. Uh, i think certainly when they were very very empty they would take on sort of ballast like lumps of rock and things but the amount um, of weight in the cannonballs was really quite small compared to and it would, it would just float slightly higher and it should probably sail a bit faster and no one would really notice. So there you go Nikki. because the ammunition fired makes up a tiny proportion of the mass of the boat as a whole, it makes almost no difference. Yes, I thought it would probably be something like that but I was just thinking about it. Thanks very much Chris. You're welcome, thanks for joining us Nikki. It's the Naked Scientists, Chris Smith Ginny Smith and Dave Ansell we're answering your science questions 
The email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientist. Dave's running a kitchen science experiment, which is sitting beautifully and, and alluringly, chillingly looking because it's full of ice cubes on the desk in this very hot room. Just remind people what, what you're doing, Dave. So I'm trying to find out whether if you have ice cubes floating in your drink as they melt, whether your drink is going to overflow. So set up your drink put a liberal lashing you could use pims i suppose Whatever a liberal lashing like, of, yes. of uh, of ice cubes and uh, bring them up to above the top of the glass with the water level level with the top will the water level go up will it go down or will it stay the same when the ice melts we'll find out later in the program now i live in hope has tweeted at naked scientists and says if tires wear on roads and roads wear with traffic where does all this stuff go but first of all just a ballpark estimate for you two what weight of rubber do you think gets worn out on the road every year? Would you guess, around the world? It must be a kilo or two per car per year. So in the UK, that's sort of 20 million kilos, so about 20,000 uh, 20, tonnes or so, off the top of my head. Well, when this question came in, I was just playing with the numbers. So I looked up how many cars do we think there are on the roads, and in 2011 they announced they think, alongside the 7 billionth person, there were 1 billion cars on the world's roads. So if you assume that each of those has got four wheels, so there are 4 billion tyres, so how much tread is on a tyre? So I said, OK, if you imagine that a tyre is about 3 metres in circumference, and let's make a really ballpark estimate, let's pretend it's 10 centimetres wide. So pretty narrow, but some are going to be bigger, some are going to be smaller. All the numbers will come out in the wash. Let's assume the tread is a centimetre deep, to make the maths easy. That means that the thickness of tread on your average tyre must be 3,000 cubic centimetres, because I'm multiplying 3 metres, 300 centimetres by 10, right? So that, in other words, is 3 litres of rubber on a tyre. So on all the cars in the world, that must be 4 billion tyres times 3 litres, that's 12 billion litres of rubber. And if we assume that a rubber tyre wears out in a year, which in some cases with a bit of hard driving it's going to, then you could be rubbing 12 million cubic metres of rubber onto the roads around the world every year, which is quite a lot, isn't it? So then I looked up the density of rubber. It's 1,200 kilograms per metre cubed, which means that there are 14.4 million tonnes of rubber being rubbed off on roads all the way around the world every year. That's extraordinary, isn't it? You can see it on my bike tyres. If you, if you cycle a lot, everything gets covered in a black gunk, which I think is mostly tyre. Sorry, um, Ian, go ahead. Ian. If you live in a city and you have your windows open, you find a black, grimy, powdery mess inside your windows, particularly on the summer, because that's when people have their windows open, of course. And those little drop bits of powder are actually ground-up tyres and bits of road tar. So in other words, there's 14.4 million tonnes of rubber littering people's living rooms and the air and all breathing that in. What about the road surface, Dave? Because that's the other point of I Live in Hope's tweet. Says, you know, where does all this stuff go? I mean, Ian's saying the road and the tyre goes in your windows, but presumably the same place, up in the air, we breathe it in. I debris guess everywhere. most of it gets washed into the rivers, either washed directly into the rivers or gets in, caught in rain. Through and the gets drains, and in, in the front drains. gardens and so on. I think mm. it's quite a pollution problem near big motorways and things. Mm. Great question, though. Thank you for that. Tweet some more, at Naked Scientists if you have one, or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. This is a special question and answer Naked Scientist show with me, Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Ginny Smith. Ian Burgess, our special guest this week. Ian, tell us about these daddy long legs that have been seemingly appearing in plagues recently. <laughs> Yeah, they appear to have been a lot more than normal. And as you said, Chris, earlier, that they seem to be smaller than normal. In fact, actually, this particular group of species does come out at this time of the year anyway. We probably have also a slight sort of pushing around of the 
emergence because there are some species that come out quite early in the spring, but because it was a relatively harder winter, then they were delayed. But the most important thing is that most of the insects that we have in the UK really prefer to have a cold winter. And over the last 10 years or so, we've had relatively mild winters. So they haven't had, the, or rather, the, the larvae in the ground or the pupae, depending on what stage they're at at winter time. They haven't had that sort of activity-suppressing effect. So they've been using up all their energy reserves much too quickly, and many of them die before they get to the point of emergence. Having had a nice cold winter, they've all been nicely tucked up in their mud or whatever and so they've survived and now they've come out because it's warm and probably we're getting different species coming out at, that maybe would have been more spread out and they're surviving much better because the conditions are nice and they're very active you see much more active than perhaps they would be if it was cooler weather now are they the leather jackets that we see when you put your fork in and dig up your plants and you find something has eaten all the roots of your prize shrubs? Uh, Is it the, well, the yeah. leather jackets? They, the... They're larvae are leather jackets, but the ones that you find normally are the big yellow and black ones and the, and the sort of khaki-coloured ones that we get in the early autumn. These will have similar larvae, but they're smaller. We heard from a gentleman mm. from the RSPB who was talking about bird migration and why it's a major problem with things coming out at different times of year because birds normally time their arrival back in a country in which they're going to breed to coincide with when there's going to be lots of food for them to eat. And if these insects that they would normally eat are appearing too early, then the insects have been and gone by the time the birds come and then the birds don't have much food and then their chicks don't have much food and then you have a lower bird population. Yes, or on the other side of it is that, of course, the birds can arrive too early because the things are being delayed. So this year, the house martins and so on had a little bit of a rough time when they first arrived because the insects weren't coming out. And in fact, they all nested rather later than normal because of that, because there wasn't enough to feed the chicks, although they're all very hard at it now. So what can we do to help the birds if, if the insects are coming out at the wrong time and, and we see these birds and there's nothing for them to eat? It depends how adjustable they are in terms of diet. I mean, things like robins and so on, although they're insectivorous, they will take seeds and, and stuff like that. But things like house martins and swallows that have to catch their food on the wing, there's nothing you can unless you can get a big handful of insects <laughs> and throw them up in the air at the right moment. <laughs> Bring lots of flies. Well, is, it, is it true that there are lots of other insects that are doing very well as well there? Because my brother's taken up beekeeping and he, he actually came up to a village in Cambridgeshire and bought a colony of bees off of a man who was downsizing. And he's taken them back to London, where he lives, and he said they're doing so well. A, he's got 40 kilos of honey in just two months. And also, he's had so many bees, he's had to split the hive. So they brought another queen in that arrived by post. This is quite interesting, get this parcel in the post that's sort of buzzing around in the post. <laughs> What's uh, called a nuke. Yeah, and, um, and then you take some of the, the bees from the existing colony and put them with a the new queen and, and off you go. But has it been a, a good year for bees then? Because I've only seen one in my entire, my entire summer. Well, I have seen other honeybees, but they're rogue ones, so to speak, in that they are ones that have swarmed 
they've gone off and they've then gone and nested in things like chimney stacks and, and roof voids. Yeah, my parents, actually, their house, they have a, a nest of honeybees in their chimney and they got someone in and asked whether they should do something about it. You know, they don't really mind them being there, but they do fall down the chimney from time to time and then they're all sooty and confused and <laughs> they leave footprints all over the curtains. So they asked if they should do something about this and the guy said, actually, no, it's better to leave them there because if you move them on, you'll end up with a load of honey dripping down your chimney, which is actually a lot harder can't, to can't clean. Can't they light a small fire? Smoke does do things to bees, it, doesn't it? It's actually, they think it's a forest fire. So what happens is that they all drink the honey as much as they can to rescue it, and then they become torpid. This is how the beekeepers control them with the, the smoke guns, so that the, when they're handling the stock, then the bees are not too aggressive. They're actually suppressed by the, the smoke. But the trouble is when they're up in an awkward place, that can be a bit of a problem. And certainly you don't light a fire in the chimney where the bees are because you will literally get the honey pouring down and then it might catch fire as well. Well, actually, these bees have been there for a good few years now and we have lit fires in that chimney and it doesn't seem to affect them. So I'm not sure where they are, but they do fall down quite regularly. So they must be somewhere up there. But it's not just the honeybees. Bumblebees have had a stunning year as far as I can see. Many, many nests. We've got a nest in our roof that's been there for two years and where I go for a walk at lunchtime there are some lime trees, an avenue of lime trees and once you get far enough away from the road and you just stand underneath there you hear constant mmm and the, if you look up the whole tree is alive with bumblebees <laughs> Ian Burgess from Insect Research and Development Limited. Thank you very much. Jim has a question on whale size insects for you in a second, Ian. But before that, let's just go to John, uh, who has a question for you, Dave. Hello, John. Hello. What can we I do have, for you? I have a question. I've wondered if the geological tectonic subduction of nuclear waste materials might be a practical way to permanently remove these dangerous substances from the biosphere and at the same time to feed the Earth's magnetic field. So you're saying Is sort of dump all our nuclear waste into the nearest subduction zone where one plate's swallowing up another? That's right. It's interesting you ask that, uh, John, because we also had a question from another John, John Summerbat, who said, could nuclear fuel be dumped into the sun? Is it possible to send it out into space so it falls into the sun, which is, of course, a nuclear reactor? Dave, what do you think? So this sounds like a lovely idea of a um, subduction zone. It's where stuff is being sucked down deep into the earth and you'd expect then it not to come back out again and it would be a nice, comfortable place to put all the nasty stuff we want to get rid of. Actually, that's not quite how the geology works. When the subduction plate gets pulled down under the earth, it gets a huge amount of friction and that surface layer gets very, very hot. And that surface layer tends to melt then come back up to the surface and form a volcano. And so you get a lot of volcanism um, related to subduction zones, and it's this top layer heating up, melting, and floating up to the surface through the surrounding rock and creating volcanoes. This means that actually if you put all your um, nuclear waste on that surface zone, quite a big, big possibility it would shoot out of a volcano probably a few hundred thousand million years later. And also there's an awful lot of water, hot fluids flowing through all that surface.
it's a really, really aggressive environment. What about John's point about the magnetic field? So the magnetic field is all to do with the very, very centre of the Earth, um, right down in the core. And in there, there's a, some, a complicated system involving liquid metal flowing around the core, parts of the core is um, metal, um, to do with the Earth spinning and um, a convection current in there, which, to be honest, I don't understand. And I think um, scientists have only recently understood it at all, creates this magnetic field. And so doing anything near the surface probably isn't going to affect that very much, He's just not going to get it. He's got to get go down through the whole mantle, which is thousands of kilometres of really thick, gooey um, rock. I think at the moment the best thing to do with nuclear waste is probably just to bury it somewhere where nothing's going to happen. So a really dull piece of um, geolo- really dull geological place, ideally in some clay, because it will sit there for a hundred thousand, few million years. Nothing's going to happen to it, and and you can just sit there until it calms down and isn't dangerous anymore. A lot of people say, well, we'll just embed it in concrete or glass or something. But then there was this paper which was published by Ian Farnan, who's a researcher at Cambridge University about seven, eight years ago. And he found that if you look at the ceramics that you put these radioactive chemicals into, because of the radioactive decay, when a uranium atom decays, it fires almost like a recoil as it fires out a a radioactive particle. It's like a gun recoiling into your shoulder when you fire a shotgun, for example. And this has the effect of knocking all of the other atoms off kilter in the substance. And the result of that is that over time, with all these atoms being knocked off kilter, you end up with the material becoming amorphous, as it's called, and it's basically riddled with holes. It's leaky. So after just 5,000 years, you'd go from something which was a solid concrete or piece of glass which would be something analogous to a sieve yeah this is why you want to put it in some rock which is naturally waterproof and naturally doesn't have cracks in it which is why i think the ideal solution is a big lump of clay i think east anglia is supposed to be very very good for it uh, <laughs> possibly not popular should we a nuclear waste dump <laughs> around here john thanks for the question let's go to jim who has a question for ian hello jim Hi there. So you wanted to ask Ian a question about uh, insects of outlandish proportions. Right. I saw an article about a, uh, a bat, a very small bat, and then I thought, wow, there's a small bat, but there's large, large mammals, you know, blue whales and things like that. It says, why, why don't you see the same size range in insects? You know, how come we don't have insects as big as cows or whales? Okay, right. Well, an insect depends for its structural integrity on having its external skeleton. And, of course, we have an internal skeleton which can be relatively robust and therefore relatively light. If you had a suit of armour on the outside, in order to get the same sort of uh, robustness, it needs to be relatively thick and is actually quite heavy. If you've ever tried a suit of armour on, or even something very similar, you'll know how difficult it was fighting 400 years ago. Now, for an insect to carry that around, it needs a, a huge amount of muscle and a lot of energy expenditure. So it requires particular conditions in order to grow bigger. And the biggest insects that we have at the moment are, are things like uh, goliath beetles, which just about will cover the palm of your hand or the the biggest ones will most of them are a bit smaller than that but back in the carboniferous which is what uh, 400 million years ago the insects had more oxygen although oxygen is an interesting thing with regard to insects because it can be toxic if they have too much so they were able to grow bigger because the conditions enabled them to actually have the energy that they could use and they could grow bigger and support in the, the heavier atmosphere 
So um, isn't this because they don't have lungs, so they can't get the oxygen to the... If you had something the size of a cow, the middle of an insect just wouldn't be able to breathe. No, I don't think that's really the issue. Okay. It's the physical structure of, of supporting all of that external skeleton. So the things that did grow big then were relatively lightly constructed, things like uh, dragonflies. Uh, and if you look at a dragonfly, it's sort of spindly. It's like one of the wonderful designs of Second World War aircraft that looked as though it was only just held together. And the other insects that grew moderately big, you've got some big cockroaches and there was a, uh, a non-insect, a big spider at that time, which was as big as a dinner plate. But that's about as far as they could go. Now, if you wanted to get much bigger than that, then you'd have to find some way of supporting them other than necessarily the just muscles and, and a big thick armour. So if we had a, an insect the size of a whale, it would probably have about a metre thickness of external skeleton just to keep it together. So it's a skeleton, isn't it? <laughs> so unless it manages to find some way of... Because, of course, you're dealing with biological materials rather than sort of sheet metal. So in order to have it that big and support it, so it'd have to find some way of getting buoyancy as well. And the only reason a whale grows as enormous as it does is because it has the water to support it. If you put a whale on land, even a little tiny whale, it suffocates because it can't even support its own breathing. Ian, thank you very much. Dave, give us a quick reminder as to the kitchen science experiment we're running to model what happens in the Arctic and Antarctic. So we're trying to do an experiment you may have inadvertently done at home. Essentially see what happens if you've got ice floating on a liquid. See what happens to the level of that liquid as the ice melts. So I've got two glasses, one where the ice is floating and one where I put so much ice in it that it was actually standing on the bottom. And we're going to come back to it soon and see what's happened. Let's find out what uh, Damon wants to talk about. Hello, Damon. Um, Far away. All right. Scientists have recently discovered the Pandora viruses. It was said they could possibly suggest the fourth domain of life. I was wondering what the implications of these viruses could be and how could we use them? Have you guys heard about this new virus that was announced just this week, wasn't it, Damon? They, they announced this Pandora virus. No, I, I must have yeah. missed that one. It's amazing. It's, what do you know about it, Damon? Tell us what you know about it. I don't know much. I think they said you could even see it with a standard microscope. It was that large. Yeah. It's published in Science this week. It's by a group in France who discovered this. Actually, they discovered this massive virus in a pool of fresh water in a pond, basically, near Melbourne in Australia. And they also found a, a very similar virus off the coast of Chile. And these viruses they've dubbed the Pandora viruses because when they had to look at them genetically, then it was anyone's guess what was in there because they did not bear any resemblance to any kind of life that we'd ever found before. So we talk about life having three established domains. There's the eukaryotes, like, you know, cells like ours. There's prokaryotes, they're bacteria, we know about those. And then there's another sort of ancient evolutionary spin-off called the archaea. And we were very happy that all life on Earth fitted into those three. Now we've got these viruses that have come along that, A, are huge. They're more than a thousandth of a millimetre across, which in virus terms, that's like you walking down the street and bumping into someone 60 feet tall. They are enormous, these viruses, and they bear no genetic resemblance to anything else that exists on the Earth. So the big questions are, why do they exist? Why are they so huge? I mean, what they do is they live on amoebae, these little single-celled organisms. They prey on them. 
And as I said, they're absolutely enormous with a huge genome. They've got two and a half million genetic letters in their genome, which is massive. I mean, it's 10 times bigger than your, your average virus does. So scientists are saying, well, when we look in the sea and we find all these bacteria that we can't grow in culture... Actually, they might not be bacteria that we can't grow at all. They might be viruses, these massive viruses that uh, we, we previously hadn't realised because the people who write the paper have said, well, actually, 13 years ago, looking in the literature, people described these funny particles and they didn't know what they were. They thought they were some funny, hard-to-grow bacterium because they were so big because they're literally 10 times bigger than a normal virus. And now they realise they are a virus, but we don't know what the hell they are. So when you say they're nothing like anything else in life basically. So if they're a virus, surely they must be hijacking another animal's sort of replication machinery. So surely they can't be that different, otherwise it wouldn't work. Sure. Their genetic code is exactly the same. So a gene in them would be the same sort of gene. It would work the same way in one of our cells and vice versa. They haven't rewritten the genetic code, but uh, they prey on amoebae and they just make more new viruses. And it's interesting because what most viruses do when they make a virus particle is that they make the coat of the virus and then they stuff the genetic material inside. These things start basically almost like they're knitting a jumper. They knit the coat as well as the, the genetic material into it all at once. So they have this really weird way of growing and they have genetic material. They don't use genes which are used by any other organisms that we know of apart from them. So exactly why they exist and where they've come from, we don't know. They're a completely alien species. Are you spooked, Damon? Uh, not so much spooked, it's just confused. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering if these are one of the hangovers from the Precambrian when you had a huge diversity of different life forms and some of those went on into the Cambrian and produced really exotic things that then suddenly vanished. Maybe these were something really exotic, but they just happened to have been saved in the deep oceans and, and places like that, obscure places, and they're, they're part of what was, went on to be the Burgess Shale-type well, things. Well, now they've been so discovered, on. I guess we'll look and, and we'll find out, but it's very interesting, isn't it? Let's go to Connor, who is on the phone. Hello, Connor. Oh, hello. What can we do for yourself? I read somewhere that it was discovered that the inner core of the Earth was solid because shear waves had passed through it and they can't pass through a liquid. Well, since the inner core is solid and the outer core is liquid, how did the shear waves pass through the outer liquid core in order to get to the detectors? A shear wave is, um, so you the two different main kind of waves. One is a pressure wave. It's like a sound wave whereby the movement, uh, the wobble is in the same direction as the wave is travelling. And a shear wave is like a wave on a string, so it's at right angles the way it's travelling. In a liquid, you can't get any shear waves except on the surface. So in the bulk of a liquid, in the body of a liquid, all the waves must be pressure waves or fluid of any kind so in the gas in the gas as well. But at the surface of a liquid, you can get shear waves. And you can get shear waves created when a pressure wave hits a surface. So basically the way they've found out that the centre of the Earth is solid is that when waves created by earthquakes on the surface go down, they get hit the liquid outer core, and then when they go from the liquid outer core into the solid inner core, you get an extra wave going off at right angles in a strange direction, which could only be because it's, it could only be a shear wave, and then you see the results of that coming out through the liquid outer core and bouncing off to an earthquake station on the wrong side of the planet where it shouldn't be. And the only way you can explain those waves getting to the earthquake station there is if the, the centre of the Earth is solid and there's a shear wave going through it. Connor. 
Thank you very much for the question. That's fine. Thanks very much. Bye Thanks bye. for joining us. Uh, Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Ginny Smith with special guest insect expert Ian Burgess this week. Keep your questions coming in. Email chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists. We have got Robin with us. Hello, Robin. Hello, sir. Robin in Rushton, Northamptonshire. Uh, we're told that the rods and cones in one's retina are sensitive to red, green and blue. Why not red, yellow and blue? The three prime colours seems more logical to me. Why not red, yellow and blue? Why go for red, green and blue? OK, um, I've built some experiments on this recently. And basically, this is due to what you think the three primary colours aren't necessarily actually the three primary colours. There's two different kinds of primary colours. One is light. So there's red, green and blue, which can trigger the three different colours of cones, kinds of cones in your eye. And you can fake pretty much any colour by using red, green and blue. And that's what a TV does. Um, the other kind of primary colours are when you want to go painting. And painting works in almost the opposite way around. You're starting off with white light, reflecting off your white piece of paper. And then you add things to it to absorb colours. So the three primary colours of paint are yellow, which absorbs blue light, sort of purple, which absorbs green light, and turquoise, which absorbs red light. And then you can add those together in different quantities and take away whichever mixture of colours you like and end up with fooling your eye to produce any colour you like. And... Um, red, yellow and blue aren't really any kind of primary colours. They're just what primary school teachers tell you and they're just confusing. Um, and you can sort of make a lot of colours of it. There you go, Robin. Confusing all of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you very much then. I mean, the bottom line here is that in the back of your eye you have these cones and they have dye pigment molecules in them that are sensitive to lights of different colours and they respond different amounts to different colours and the eye is basically comparing what amount of activation there is of these different dyes in proportion to each other and it knows that if you have a certain amount of the red one and a certain amount of the green one this must be a colour somewhere in between the two. Yes, they reflect in some sort of but, negative way, don't they? As you say, the um, the turquoise reflects in red and... Uh, absorbing red. Yeah. Absorbs red yeah. So the other way you can think of it is from an evolutionary point of view. And actually, primates like us, we're quite unusual in being able to see the spectrum of colours that we can see. So the red-green distinction is thought to be relatively recent, and that was thought to be because it was really important for us to be able to tell when fruits were ripe. So it became really important for us to be able to see a ripe red strawberry in a green bush. So we evolved this ability that a lot of other animals don't have. So we now use vision a lot more than things like smell, which is much more important for other animals. And that might be because of the same reason we evolved this ability to tell red and, and green apart so well. And then a lot of monkeys and things use, you know, red bottoms and things like that to signal sex rather than like smell. Like a sexual traffic light, only red doesn't mean stop. In that case, <laughs> exactly. Because even some animals, in insects, see in domains like ultraviolet. Mm. Bees can see UV, can't they? Oh, indeed, yes. Actually, the, the spectrum that we see is really quite tiny. I mean, if you look at what insects can see, much of it's shifted, as you say, towards the UV, but it is not only much broader, it's much more spectacular when you look at it in the, an insect's eye view. Yeah, um, thank you. Dave, why don't, Camilla asks, people in Australia feel upside down? <laughs> It's basically to do with how we define the right way. We're up. assuming that Camilla is in the northern hemisphere, I presume. <laughs> she, she might just like standing on her head in Australia. 
So how do you define where down is? It's where if you take a rock and you drop it, when you let go of it, which direction the rock falls in? But I guess what she's getting at is if you imagine yourself standing upright in the northern hemisphere and then you were to sort of go to the southern hemisphere, relative to you, they are upside down. So why doesn't it feel like you're the wrong way up when you've gone under the earth? Why does it look like you're still on a flat earth? Um, It's basically because we define downwards and the right way up by what direction things drop in. And we we haven't evolved to live on spheres, to think of the world as a sphere. We kind of, on some level, deep level, we think of it as relatively flat because pretty much to all intents and purposes it is. Therefore, whichever way you drop things is down and therefore whether you're on the, um, everything drops towards the centre of the earth, so whether you're on the top or the bottom or the side, um, you're always pulled to the middle, so the down is always towards the centre of the earth. But also, uh, I think the point is the earth is so huge relative yeah. to us that the horizon is the height of your eyes above the ground in feet. So it's just 1.23 times the square root of the height of your eyes in uh, in feet above the ground tells you the distance to the horizon. So it's going to be miles and miles and miles away. So therefore you are not really dominated in your vision by the curvature of the Earth. So it therefore looks flat to you. Isn't that right? Ginny, can you help Tori out who says, is there a safe tablet a person can take to increase the melanin, the dark pigment in your skin to get a tanned look? What do you think? This would be brilliant for anyone like me who is very pasty white and doesn't really tan very much and hates the idea of getting my legs out at the start of the summer. And there are quite a few products on the market that claim to give you a suntan, but I had a look into this and they all seem a bit dodgy. So a lot of them aim to boost your melanin production. So when you go out in the sun, UV hits your skin and it increases the production of this thing called melanin, which gives you the tanned look and also protects you from the sun. So this would be great if we could have something to boost melanin. Not only would it give you a nice tanned complexion, but it would also protect you against skin cancer. But the way they do this, these pills, is by giving you more of the precursor to melanin, which is an amino acid called tyrosine. So they claim that by boosting levels of tyrosine, you'll make more melanin. There doesn't really seem to be much evidence to back that up. Most of us aren't deficient in tyrosine. It comes from chicken, fish, dairy, seeds, all sorts of things. So unless you're deficient in it, you've probably got enough to make all the melanin your body wants to make anyway. So boosting it probably isn't going to do anything. There are other pills on the market that kind of dye you from the inside out. Doesn't sound great to start with. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was a Sunny Delight drink that got really popular. Yeah. and Like an orange juice, but it was really orange and quite weird looking. But there was a little kid who drank a load of it and turned orange. Well, if you eat a lot of carrots, because carrots contain beta carotene, that's two vitamin A molecules stuck together. This is actually safe because it just deposits in all the fat in your tissue and it makes your fat go orange. And so there are people who have had a bit of an or- a carrot-eating fetish who have gone a very orange colour. And that was the same stuff that was in Sunny Delight that caused this kid to go orange. So it wasn't going to do her any harm, but she went a bit of a weird colour. And that's one of the things that they put in these pills. So unless you want the tangoed look, maybe not the way to go. There's also another food additive called camphaxanthin, which is safe in small amounts in food. It's used to dye food, but they're giving it to you in much bigger quantities in the supplement. And that's more brownie colour, so they claim it's going to be more natural. But in large doses, it can actually settle in your eyes and form crystals, which can affect your eyesight. So I don't think that one's the way to go either. Of course, what flamingos eat is a lot of uh, astaxanthin, which is uh, the chemical made by the algae on the things they're eating. And that's a pink colour, which is why they end up pink. They're actually white if they don't eat all the algae. 
And I guess all these dyes aren't going to have the advantage of protecting you from UV as well, especially if they're settling in the fat. So... Yeah, so the pills don't seem to really be getting anywhere, but there's one really interesting study by David Fisher at Harvard Medical School who found a chemical that you apply topically called phoscholin, which comes from a tropical mint plant, and they applied it to mice, and it actually increased the melanin production, darkened their skin, and protected these mice from cancer. And the tan was just like a natural one. So he's now working on finding a way to get this stuff to penetrate human skin rather than mouse skin. So we may have a natural tanning cream sometime soon. It's the same stuff that a group of uh, scientists in China have announced this week is part of their recipe for reprogramming adult skin cells to turn them back into stem cells. Oh dear, could go either way, couldn't it? And Jeff is with us. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Chris. Go on then, fire away. What's your question? My question actually came from one of my students. I teach introductory physics and astronomy, and my student asked me a question I couldn't answer, and I thought I would pass it on to you. Oh, thanks. Uh, His question was... Could a planet have a green atmosphere? And if it did, what gases would it be composed of? And could life exist there? Okay, so I think it'd be difficult to get a green atmosphere in the same way as we have a green atmosphere on Earth, which is scattering, and that mostly at the blue end of the spectrum. You might be able to get a slightly greeny tinge to that if you're very, very clever, but I can't really see how you could do it. Um, the only gas I can think of, which is very definitely green, is chlorine, and that's an incredibly reactive gas, probably similar to oxygen, so you'd have to kind of um, hypothesise some kind of life based on taking sunlight and giving out chlorine rather than oxygen. Um, we have life that uses oxygen because oxygen was abundant yeah. and it's an oxidising agent so it's not beyond the ken of you know reasonable grounds that, that chlorine could do that is it? Because yeah, you it, can light a candle and put it in a vat of chlorine and a candle will burn. Yeah so it's not entirely implausible. I wouldn't want to visit it because it would be a scary place <laughs> to visit. Pretty horrible place to go. There you go Jeff so you need planet chloros <laughs> <laughs> or something similar. We think chlorine. Okay. Thanks for joining us on the show. You're very welcome. Very quick one. Connor Walsh says, noise-cancelling headphones. If energy can't be destroyed, are we hearing the same pressure of noise silently? Well, what you're effectively doing, Connor, you're, you're making anti-noise. You're making sound waves which are out of phase with the sound coming in from outside. And when the two waves meet, they cancel out. That's called destructive interference. And you end up with no sound where previously there would be sound. But you're not actually not hearing anything. You're just getting the waves that are reaching your eardrum have an amplitude that's fallen to a minimum. So they don't move you your eardrum very much and therefore you don't seem to hear anything now dave we'd better finish with our kitchen science experiment which is you melted some ice cubes in a glass to we asked will the glass overflow if it's filled already and the ice is floating at the top what are you finding so the two glasses the one where the ice um was getting down to the bottom of the glass seems to have overflowed really quite well and there's a great big puddle of water on the corner of the tray and this is kind of what you'd expect if the ice is being supported by itself then there's more ice in the pot than can fit in the pot in the glass and so eventually at some point it's got to overflow as the ice melts and and, uh, levels out and that's what you'd expect so this is a bit like melting ice which is standing on the ground so this is like melting ice on antarctica or greenland in greenland um the other ice um was floating on top of the glass and as far as i can tell there's been a little bit of water running down the sides of the glass but i think that's mostly condensation but the water is still sitting pretty much where it was before essentially because the ice was floating and therefore it's displacing exactly the same amount of water as its own weight so as it melts it fills exactly the same hole and nothing changes at all and it will sit there for as long as you like so melting ice when it's floating on water has almost no effect on so the sea if level. the north pole melted 
then there wouldn't be a consequence for sea level because it would already be floating and therefore pushing that much water out of the way already. Yeah, the only minor effect would be if that meant that the rest of the sea got slightly warmer and as as when water gets above 4 degrees centigrade, it does expand as it heats up. So, yeah, so that would be the only effect. But actually, the ice melty wouldn't have an effect at all. Well, that is almost it for this week, but there's just time now to squeeze in our question of the week as Hannah scratches her head to wonder how brain cells got inside there in the first place. This week, we exercise our brain cells with this. My name is Georgia and I'm five. And my question is, how do grown-up cells know what they're going to be? How do brain cells know that they're going to be grown up and in my brain? So egg and sperm meet to form one zygotic baby cell, which then gives rise to over 100 trillion cells of about 200 different and very distinct cell types, which work together to form our grown-up body and brain. But how does this all happen? We turn to Professor Sir John Gurdon from Cambridge University, who explains this mind-blowing phenomena to Georgia. As an egg develops into an embryo, the various cells derived from that egg decide what kind of cell they will become. Some of them become brain cells, and other ones become heart cells, etc. There are two principles by which this cell fate decision takes place. One is that in eggs there are unequally distributed molecules called determinants. Some of these end up in cells at one end of the embryo, and other determinants end up in cells at the other end of the embryo. Those cells which have a high amount of the first kind of determinant will become nerve cells, and those that acquire a high amount of the second molecule might become heart cells or other kinds of cells. These early differences are often enhanced by a second mechanism. This is when cells of one kind send out chemical signals to make cells at the other end of the embryo become more different from the embryo cells. Then there is the question of how those cells that have decided to become brain cells get to the brain. This is because they don't take their final decision to become brain cells until they are already located in the future brain. Thanks, Sir Gurdon. And last year, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for his seminal discovery on how grown-up cells can be converted back into stem cells, like those found in unborn babies, and can then, with chemical tweaking, create any cell type in the body. Well, with that question developed, we turn to this. Hi, my name is Daniel Husters, and I was just wondering, how come dark matter doesn't clump up, like, uh, into black holes, into singularities, or into sun-shaped objects? So after the Big Bang, there was lots of matter around and gravity caused it to clump together to form our planets, our moons and suns. But how come dark matter doesn't cluster in the same way to form dark suns or dark planets? Or does it? Send us your thoughts. And if you think you know the answer, 
and you can help Hannah out, then do please send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or you can write on our Facebook page. We also have a web forum running, nakedscientists.com slash forum. That is it for this week. Thank you very much to Ginny Smith, to Dave Ansell, and to our guest this week, Ian Burgess from Insect Research and Development. And thank you for sending in all of your science questions. Do please keep them coming in, chris at thenakedscientists.com. Next week, we're turning our gaze skywards to hear about the new Gaia Space Telescope, which could soon help us to understand how our galaxy, the Milky Way, formed in the first place. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It is supported by the Wellcome Trust and the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.